0: Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I am Zach Davis, and I am stretching out and making myself at home in the studio by myself. My co-host, Ashley McKinless, has abandoned me for a well-deserved vacation in Jordan this week, so I've heard from her. It's going well. She's enjoying her time there. She made it to Mount Nebo the other day. Looks beautiful. So keep Ashley in your thoughts and prayers as she's going through vacation this week. But more importantly, keep me in your thoughts and prayers because I got to host the show by myself. So our guest this week is someone that you've heard before. He's been on the show uh, almost two years ago to the date. Uh, His name's Pete Davis. He was on the show back in 2021 to talk about his book, Dedicated, about why we should commit in an age of infinite browsing. And he's back with a brand new movie called Join or Die. I think this is such an important topic. You know, we hear all the time that America is in a loneliness epidemic, that we have a crisis of friendship, we have a crisis of mental health, and Pete really takes a look at this through the lens of a work by Robert Putnam called Bowling Alone, which was a book that really caused quite a stir about this phenomena of Americans joining fewer and fewer clubs and associations, you know, sports teams, unions, churches, um Bridge clubs, um, you, you name it. We we used to love joining things, and no one really does that anymore. And it's a huge problem. And there's a definite Catholic angle to this too. You know, being communitarians and all of that. So stick around for that. And then I'm also going to offer a few words about some Catholic news this week. Some things that have been rolling around in my head. It'll be a shorter version of SOTs. And I am very excited this week because I do have a drink, which we usually do on the podcast. And I know it's not always great to drink alone. So if you are out there somewhere and you can pour a beverage while you listen to this, uh, please do that so I'm not drinking alone. But I wanted to tell you about the beer. It's a Tank 7 American Saison Ale from Boulevard Brewing Company um, from Kansas City, Missouri not Kansas. Um, And it is courtesy of a Patreon supporter who's joining us live in studio for this episode, Chris Kinker. We Thank you so much. We always welcome Patreon supporters to come by and stick around for a recording of the podcast, but we also welcome their favorite contributions to the Jesuitical bar cart. So very much appreciated, Chris. Uh, Thanks for being here. So we're going to get to our conversation with Pete Davis, but there are just a couple things that I wanted to highlight and get to before we do that. So I'm gonna try to do an abbreviated version of Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. So you might have already known this, but Pope Francis was in Hungary at the end of April, the 28th through the 30th, but this week, we got news of a transcript that was published from a visit that Pope Francis made to a community of Jesuits in Hungary. Three topics that were I, I want to focus on that he, he covered. First was he was asked about young people, uh, young people in the church, um, young Jesuits in formation. And he very clearly said uh, what the church needs to do is to speak clearly. He has this very funny quote that it, it used to be said to be a good Jesuit, you had to think clearly and speak obscurely. So if you know any Jesuits that... Uh, sometimes speak obscurely or speak in a Jesuitical way to reference the name of this show. That must be where it comes from. But he says that way of doing things is really, really uh, out of date, and young people will sniff that out. And what we're really looking for, if I can still call myself young, uh, is authenticity. You know, people just want to hear what you're about. Um, they want to see you talk the talk and walk the walk. Um, so I, I thought this was sort of you know the harken back to our conversation about Pope Francis dialoguing with young people. In the Hulu documentary, uh, The Pope Answers, I thought this is exactly what he was talking about. He models that pretty well, um, and I'm glad he told other Jesuits too as well. Another big thing that got brought up, uh, he was asked about his time in Argentina during the dictatorship where you know thousands of people were disappeared and killed. Uh, it's referred to as the Dirty War. Uh, Pope Francis was then uh, Father Jorge Mario Bergoglio, but he was also the Jesuit Provincial of Argentina uh, from 1973 to 79, which was really kind of the height of that time. But the question that was asked to the Pope from uh, the Jesuit community was about his relationship to Jesuits in Argentina that were kidnapped and tortured, who were working you know among the people in the barrios. Um, and whether you know Pope Francis had done enough to protect them or if they had ever reconciled because I think things kind of soured between them. So you know, we'll link to Pope Francis' answer for all these questions, but we'll also you know put some links out there to the Dirty War in Argentina and Francis' relationship to that. If you want to go into that more, in uh, the third topic that was brought up, sort of um, Pope Francis brought this up was about the Latin Mass. So that always you know raises eyebrows and gets uh, keyboard warriors typing on Twitter whenever that's brought up. But the question itself was actually about uh, Vatican II. Jesuit posed the question, you know, the Second Vatican Council talks about the relationship between the church and the modern world. And right now we're kind of experiencing some resistance. So the Pope is talking about this, what he calls this unbelievable restorationism in the church. Uh, He uses the Italian word indietrismo, which is backwardness to talk about this ideology that he sees throughout the church. And he sort of without prompting, without anyone else prompting him, you know, brings up the Latin mass and says, that's why I you know, put these restrictions in place on the Latin Mass and encouraging everyone to celebrate the liturgy that was decided upon in the Roman Missal of 1962, which is when you know we stopped saying Mass in Latin. The priest turned around, faced the congregation, all those things, and it is still a very important issue to a lot of Catholics. So, why did I bring this story in particular? You know, Pope Francis talking to Jesuits. Um, it happens all the time. Every time the Pope travels, he meets, and I think this is interesting because. Pope Francis, being a Jesuit, this is an opportunity for us to see him when he's sort of like at his most comfortable. You know, he he feels at home in these communities. You know, he's lived in them in his entire life prior to becoming pope, and so he has a certain nostalgia for that, possibly. But in the absence of having frequent press conferences with the pope, I think this quasi functions as one, right? But nonetheless, these are sort of these are like chances for some like freewheeling Q and A's with some people that are interested in the church and Jesuits you know, love him or hate him, they are pretty free in what they feel willing to ask the Pope, you know, to be able to ask the Pope about a very hard time in his life, a controversial time in his life. um, I know journalists that would shy away from doing that. So you're going to want to check this out. Uh, We're going to link to it in the show notes. You can read the whole transcript. You can read all the questions, all the answers. I didn't touch on all of them, uh, but you can find that linked below. So that was my abbreviated attempt at Signs of the Times some Catholic news for you this week. Uh, But before we get to the interview, I do have a couple brief parish announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. Um, And first of all, want to thank some new Patreon supporters. So we recently published a bonus episode where we're talking about Hulu's documentary, The Pope Answers, where Ashley and I are joined by our colleagues' fathers, Jim McDermott and Ricardo Da Silva. Great conversation about this really thrilling documentary of the Pope conversing with a number of young people on all kinds of topics. So very worth checking out. You can find a preview of it in this feed. Uh, But if you want whole episode, you can join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash americamedia. And I want to give a huge shout out this week to uh, some new patrons. So thank you so much to Chuck Doer, Matthew Kenny, LMN, to Michelle Cerrone Collier, Gigi Brienza, and Haley Hayes. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. We can't do this without you. It means a ton. Um, we're joined in studio today by a Patreon supporter. So Chris, thank you so much. Uh, if you're ever in New York, please don't be shy. Uh, reach out to Ashley and I at Jesuitical at americamedia.org. We'd love to see you. Coming up, we've got our conversation with Pete Davis. But before that, wanted to let you know a few words about our sponsor this week. So I have, if I'm honest, a ton of self-confidence and that goes a long way in podcasting, also on the dance floor. But if I'm honest, I don't really have any skills at all. My hips, they lie, they lie a ton. Um, And it's always been this like thing I've been very self-conscious about. I get nervous. Um, Basically anything, it's not a wedding where I can't dance like a cool, fun uncle. And so I was psyched to find Wondrium's new program, How To Dance. If you've ever tried or failed at dancing and you've wanted to Mambo or salsa or tango, maybe waltz, maybe you wanted to try some West Coast Swing, East Coast Swing. I don't know the difference between those two, but I'm excited to find out. One Dream has how to dance a course for you. And maybe you are a great dancer. Well, that's not a problem because One Dream has all kinds of courses. And that's why One Dream is our favorite educational platform. And there really is so much to love about it. All their content is vetted and presented by respected professors and experts who really know their stuff. And their app is super easy to use. And we know that you'll love One Dream too. So do what we did and sign up today. Right now, Wondrium is offering our listeners a free month. But you have to sign up with our special URL, wondrium.com/jesuitical. That's a free month of courses like how to dance and so many others. You just have to visit W O slash I U M.com/jesuitical. And now here's our conversation with Pete Davis about join or die.
2: Joining us in studio is Pete Davis. Pete is a writer, civic advocate and the author of Dedicated: The Case for a Commitment in an Age of Infinite Browsing. And with his sister Rebecca Davis, he produced and directed the new documentary film Join or Die about why you should join a club. Welcome back to Jesuitical Pete. So
1: glad to be here Two Timers Club.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, it's an elite it's an elite group. So <laughs> welcome welcome to it. And we were so excited to talk to you because um we we loved the conversation we had about Dedicated. That struck a chord with a lot of our audience and yeah, I feel like now with Join or Die, we were talking a little bit off mic about how you're hitting this uh, like niche. How did you describe it? Like Public it public interest, self-help. Public oh. interest,
1: self-help, which is great. <laughs> you know, I like making <laughs> creations that both are about everything going on in social issues and community in America, but also very relevant to your individual life and could make you happier
0: yeah and i think this the film is a great case for exactly that um so the film is called join or die which is pretty stark <laughs> yes <laughs> but i don't after watching it i don't think it overstates
1: the, yeah i the hope problem. you know we wanted right from the start to say exactly what the film is about its title is join or die which is kind of making a claim um pretty stark claim and then opening line of the film that i say is this is a film about why you should join a club and why the fate of america may depend on it and then we thought oh if we call our shot then we have to earn it in the next hour and a half. Yeah. of, Did they Did they make that case? And that's what we attempted. To Babe know. Ruth pointing to where he's going to hit yeah. the home run. Yeah. So th- and it's interesting
2: because one, our like physical lives, like our physical health, depends on it, and our democracy. So can you give us a broad overview of how joining a club can save you individually?
1: Yeah. And, so yeah, it's, as a country. it's good to start with individually because <laughs> yeah. first off, we just you know at the right at the center of the film we we have our like. Are super fact about this, which, um, you know, one of the protagonists of the film, Bob Putnam, says um, during his speeches after coming out with Bowling Alone, which is kind of the book at the center of the film, um, where he says, your chances of dying in the next 12 months is cut in half by joining one group. And we bring on this wonderful researcher, Julian holt lundstadt who actually kind of talks about that in scientific terms, which is, you know, there's a 50 percent decrease in mortality, which is kind of a the most objective measure of health, health outcomes that you can get. And this measure is comparable to smoking. It's comparable to excessive alcohol drinking. It's comparable to air pollution. And we have all these public health Programs out there to get you to stop smoking, to get you to not overdrink, to get you, uh, you know, to work on air pollution for the sake of our health, and the point Julianne was making, the point Bob. Has been making is we should have that for social isolation as well because it's so important. Can to our you con- connect
2: the dots for us? How what's the causal mechanism that joining well, a club are, keeps you from dying?
1: Yeah. So we. So first off, you know there there are just some practical aspects of this. Like if you like literally the goofiest example is like if you're literally dying slowly in your house, knowing someone who will come check on you yeah, will help right. you. Yeah. Um, so that's the most extreme version. But it's also you know having friends are the type of people that introduce you to hobbies that. you know, are good for you. They're the type of people that check on you when you're kind of going off the deep end on something. You know, there's so much associated with happiness with regard to being in community. And then that there's also a growing body of research around happiness being connected to like physical health outcomes. And, you know, the evolutionary story of this is basically, you know, we came up as a species in groups. And so there's kind of this rediscovery of the idea that basically our natural state is together. And we process not being together as a lack. And so to return to being together gets us closer to the way we were built. You mentioned the main
0: character of the film is uh, Bob Putnam and his his book and work, um, famously Bowling Alone. But for someone who
1: hasn't heard of that,
0: could you give yeah. the thesis of Bob's work and what he yeah, found?
1: You know, and I'm, I'll start actually with the book right before Bowling Alone, which gives the stakes of this. So Bob Putnam was, you know, he's my former teacher, which is how I got connected to this. I took his class about 13 years ago. And he was just kind of an ordinary political scientist working in the 70s. And he's looking for different political science uh, themes to explore. And he goes to Italy and he discovers this perfect political science experiment, which is that Italy was breaking up from a national centralized government to a bunch of state regional governments. And he said, perfect political science experiment, I can test what makes democracy work by seeing what factors lead to some of these regional governments working and some of these regional governments not working. And the factor that he found was the most significant to making democracy work was not economics. It was not the design of the the state or the constitution. It was not the quality of the state leaders. It was actually what he called civic culture or community, what he eventually titled social capital, um, appropriating kind of a term that's been around for about 100 years, um, which is the more connections people have, the more goofy clubs they are part of, bocce clubs and football leagues and, you know, just ordinary newspaper readership or just asking people, how much do you trust your neighbor? That was what was the factor and what made those regions thrive. And then he comes back to America after doing that study. That's the little prequel to Bowling Alone. He comes back to America after doing that study and he goes, hey, you know, I've made this big discovery about the connection between community and democracy. What about my own country? So he starts looking into community in America and he uncovers... What year is this? Just This is status. around nineteen early 90s. And he discovers that there's been a decline over the last, you know, at that point, 30, 40 years in community engagement, in the amount people knew their neighbors, in the amount they were joining clubs, in the amount they were part of unions, in the amount they were part of congregations. And eventually that all leads to the amount of social trust they had. And he made, has this major symbol of that... Uh, bowling alone, which he's, you know, one of the big data points he discovered was the amount of bowling we did was just as much as it was mid-century. But the amount that we were bowling in leagues, bowling in teams, um, was greatly declining. And he said that was the same across most all other groups. And he said, and, you know, he raised the alarm. He wrote this essay, Bowling Alone, Uh, America's Declining Social Capital. And it went viral, it was on all the newspapers, all the TV shows. He was invited to the White House and everyone in the late 90s started talking about, oh, my gosh, we have this community problem in America. But then it, you know, kind of fizzled out. Yeah, they didn't, fix it. So it yeah. didn't spoil. fix it.
0: I'm like, I want to go back in time and be like, OK, guys, what the yeah. heck? Like, well, he didn't part do of it, it was
1: it was like he was chicken little saying the sky is going to fall. He says, I discovered in Italy it's very important to democracy and very important community to societal thriving. And. Were I'm seeing all this writing on the wall of what's going to happen. And I think part of the reason it didn't take off is because most people didn't think the sky was falling. They're like, America's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and now 20 years later, you know, Bob talks about this in the movie and we can all see around us. Most people feel like, oh, yeah, we do have some trouble in America. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the sky has fallen. Yeah. And part of the reason we wanted to make this movie was was this fact of like, let's revisit the the prophet who predicted it.
2: Is there a timeline to this in in his book? Like what did it happen all at once? We just like went off a cliff when uh, everyone got cable TV or yeah. was it like a slow burn thing where we like slowly started disaffiliating and then look up one day and you're all alone?
1: Yeah. So what's so special about Bob that makes him stand out from kind of curmudgeons. Um, you know, there's a lot of people writing about things used to be better in the good yeah. old days and and our movie and Bob himself is not nostalgic about that, but what set Bob apart is he didn't really have an ag- like a nostalgic agenda. He was just a guy who loved collecting large data sets and crunching the numbers on it. So he just started collecting data sets on union, uh, you know, union membership, church membership, group membership, neighborhood trust, things like this, and he just found that all the graphs started showing declines around the mid-century, so around the 1960s, basically, and steady declines. Every decade, basically, since the fastest were in kind of ordinary club membership. You know, th- he found that it was basically cut in half between the '70s and the '90s. The amount of people who reported, you know, how many club meetings did you go to a year? The stuff that was declining slower when he wrote Bowling Alone in the '90s and the book, bu- the big book, came out in 2000 was religion. There was still a decline, but it was like 90 percent to 75 percent. In the years since Bowling Alone, that's when you've seen the biggest religious decline. And so, you know, you've probably talked about it on the podcast, but, you know, we crossed the 50% threshold in congregational membership in the last few years. And, you know, in Bowling Alone, if you read the old book, it was like, we have a decline. We're down to, you know, 80% membership. So a a lot of that decline has happened in the last 20 years.
0: And it's not even formal clubs. Like I I was stunned by the, the stat about picnics. (laughs) <laughs> Where it, I wrote it down because I was blown away. as you know, most Americans or Americans would go on average five picnics a year in 1975, yep. and by 1999 that went to two times a year, which is a that's a pretty significant drop, and yeah. not a way I would have ever thought to have measured anything like this.
1: But are, were there, are there other like informal things yeah, that they are seeing? Yeah, picnics. Dinner parties are down. The amount of times you've had neighbors over to the house is down. And then he collects other aspects of kind of social like unraveling. So the amount that we're flicking people off, we report flicking people off goes up, you know, has been oh, going Oh, fascinating. Up. The amount of people that report saying I could beat someone else in a fight, which is kind of a fun <laughs> social science one of like, you know, of kind of belligerence is also, you know, up. also going up. So, you know, this is... Um, The reason Bob wanted to find this informal data was because, you know, people used to say, oh, you're saying the Kiwanis Club or the Rotary Club is down, but we're all joining new clubs. And he was like, I have a feeling that's not the case. And he actually, we talk about this in the movie, he found really interesting data sets. Like he he talked to a marketing firm that had been asking people questions just for qu- their corporate clients. And that's how he got the picnic data because, you know, the ketchup companies want to know if people are going to keep buying hot dogs or something. <laughs> or, you know, the napkin companies want to know if we're still having dinner parties. And so he found this proprietary data that actually showed... All types of connection, even informal connection, was down.
2: So one thing that I was thinking about when watching the film is, like, it seems like such, like, obvious goods. Like, who doesn't love a picnic? <laughs> like, who doesn't love a dinner party? Who doesn't like, well, like, so what what is preventing us from wanting these things that we know are so essential to our personal health and social health. And so like if it's just it seems like if it's so obvious (laughs) that these are good and people enjoy them, then what's what's keeping us back? You know,
1: I feel like this is always a dance between our ideals and our institutions, like the way we design our world reflects what we want. And then the way the design our world uh, structures what we want and do. And it's a dance back and forth. And slowly over time, if there was this kind of emergence of hyper individualism, um, slowly, we started baking that hyper individualism into our institutions, uh, whether soft institutions like cultural tropes or hard institutions like how we design the economy or how we design our cities or literal architecture or urban design. And so over time, you become locked into a way of being. And so we can always fight it, but it becomes harder. So, you know, we start designing our cities in a way that is not conducive to connecting with each other. Um, Less plazas, more big streets to be in your car. (laughs) Less front porches, more back patios. You know, our economy, we have to ask questions like, is that conducive to us, the way that our work week is scheduled? The, you know, amount we're getting paid to make ends meet, is that conducive to connecting with other people? And then cultural tropes, too. You know, you get a bunch of cultural tropes that, you know, start celebrating um, not connecting. Like, you know, George Carlin becomes super famous in the 80s writing, I hate all groups, you know, and would get huge applause lines saying that. Nothing against George Carlin. I don't want to go against him. But, you know, you have waves of different, you know, times when community is emphasized versus individualism is emphasized.
0: Well, and even like... I. I have a hard time ignoring like our the technology that we've just sort of yep. accepted th- to infiltrate our lives. Like the film touches on television being sort of like at least a, a correlative uh, indicator for the, m- the more time we spend watching television, there's a correlation between the time we spend in groups has decreased yep. almost one-to-one and that was with television. And I think now we're not even like watching the same shows at the same time with like the advent of streaming. And like, I think we all just spend a ton of time in these like socially connected spaces, but do those count the same? Do digital connections count the same as what in the good old days would have been like the Kiwanis club or your bowling league?
1: Yeah. I like talking about this as, you know, I went to law school and there was, you know, people had a hard time defining the word property in law school. And they used to say property is a bundle of sticks, by which they meant it's, you know, 17 different things that, you know, of which some things will have some of those sticks and some things will have others and all of them will kind of be a cloud of meaning that means property. And I feel the same about community. Community is a bundle of sticks. You know, it is people bringing you soup when you're sick. It's people giving you information. It's people entertaining you. It's people creating a shared meaning that connects you to something larger than yourself. You know, all these things are aspects that go into a relationship and a community.
0: I was gonna say, maybe even just like all of all those things you listed right there, like one by one, if we could just tick off, if you Totally. yeah so so
1: the internet Gets you some of those sticks. You know, it could entertain you. Part of the story of TV leading to the kind of community is, you know, my grandpa, who was a Jewish immigrant in Pittsburgh, you know, used to go to the Yiddish theater that his neighbors were the, <laughs> the people in the play, you know, um, in his town in Pittsburgh. And um now you just watch, you know, famous people far away on TV. And um, so now, you know, the internet can entertain you and make up for that Yiddish theater. Um, to the internet can give you information about what's going on. You know, it used to be, you know know, community would tell you about the open job. Now you can go on LinkedIn or something. Maybe it can give you a sense of meaning of something larger than yourself. But probably not. But probably not. Maybe it can bring you soup when you're sick if that internet relationship allegedly leads to a real world relationship. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, you know, is there higher quality, more sticks that make up community in real world relationships as you get out of internet relationships? And are we getting a a thinner, more meager version of community out of internet relationships? Though Bob is really clear in saying, you know, it's not an either or, because, you know, there are some early findings that when there are what he calls alloys, um, internet communities that also have a real world connection or real world communities that also have an internet connection, it might actually supercharge the community. So when your book club has a text thread you went from meeting and being in community and getting a bunch of the joys of community once a week at your book club or once a month at your book club to getting that and getting fun links sent to you, getting new invites, hey, we're all at the bar tonight, two of us are at the bar tonight, getting more, you know, support when you have needs and making you feel closer to your book club when you next meet. So, um, we all have to think about the end goal here, not kind of either or. There's a lot of gray area.
2: Yeah. So I had this this is kind of off what we were talking about, but I had this weird experience during the pandemic of, I feel like the narrative was like, we all became isolated, but in some ways, like, my world shrunk so much down to like literally my neighborhood because yes. <laughs> I was like, I had my pot of friends and we were within walking distance of each other. We had a lot of picnics because <laughs> it was outside. I like, we found the one bar that we go to and like get to know the bartenders. And I like, for like the first time since living in New York, felt like. I did have more community. Um, so it just it gives me hope that like some exogenous shocks can change this.
1: Yeah, isn't there that famous story of like Dorothy Day was inspired by being in the like San Francisco yeah. earthquake? Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes these things can result in making us, you know, want more, you know, things bounce in interesting directions in society.
0: Yeah. I mean, I was uh, Ashley and I run in similar circles. And so I was thinking about all the ways that like I've benefited from different clubs. And maybe that's, I don't know, that's just useful to say, because some people may be saying like, I have no idea what's even out there for me to to join up with. And so it's like, all right, I am young professional living in New York City. Um, I have friends from a soccer team, a rec soccer team that I signed up with, and those are mostly random people. I started watching Premier League soccer and found a bar in my neighborhood that all, everybody gets together Love and it. watches that team, um, which is a totally different experience than just like
1: joining some online forum and you know watching at my house. yeah, Isn't that so much better than the funniest tweet? Yes. So like the funniest tweet about the game is like, oh, haha, that was really funny. I'd never, none of my friends would have ever said something mm-hmm. that funny mm-hmm. because it's the funniest one, you know, yeah. that was algorithmically shown to you. But just seeing it with a friend is a billion times better than the funniest tweet. <laughs> yeah. No, it's
0: so true. It's in like the experience of community and euphoria and despair. So there's that. I belong to a parish. I live within walking distance to friends. And I feel like... I- this film made me way more (laughs) grateful for all of these things because I I am aware that that is not the norm for most people.
1: Yes. You know, our goal was actually, you know, we had this two-sided goal with the film. One is for people who weren't joiners it would be a nudge to become a joiner this is a film about why you should join a club join or die um but we also wanted for people who are joiners who do feel a sense of connection to just notice it more in their life and see it through that lens and you know sometimes i like telling the story of you know someone who's running the first first thursday book club of every first thursday every month and they're they're like ah do i want to you know do i want to send that email and and do it and and um you know, is this really, does this really matter? You know, the, one of the messages of the movie is, it really does matter. Go out to the bar, go to the club, you know, join the thing if your friend wants to bring you along to it. You no, know?
0: I finished watching earlier this week and there's a Liverpool game and I literally texted Ashley and said, I was on the fence about watching this at home or going to the bar, yes. so um, I'm gonna
1: send you my tab. <laughs> okay, from- <laughs> <happy too. laughs> Someone actually came <laughs> up to us after a screening. We were just in Lansing, Michigan, and a guy came up to me and he goes, you just ruined my retirement. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry to hear that.
0: There's a moral dimension to this that I wanted to touch on um, and give you a chance to kind of speak to, since this is a Catholic podcast. Because I do feel like there is something, a fundamental difference of outlook between like individualism and collectivism. Um, and I'm wondering what you think Catholic social teaching has to say about the the
1: difference between those and the ways we should organize American civic life. Totally. You know, I I have two things on that. Just on a basic person-to-person level. My favorite, pri- can you have a favorite priest? <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And an,
2: <laughs> no, and and I have a ranking. Rank. I was like, and a least <laughs> favorite yeah. too.
0: Yeah, my, that's all right. My,
1: my favorite priest, uh, Father James uh, James F. Keenan um, in at Boston College. He has this wonderful reflection on mercy, which is mercy is the great Catholic virtue, he says, Um, you know, even though other people believe in mercy, we're the ones who have fleshed it out the most. He says mercy is the willingness to enter into the chaos of others. Um, And he says, you know, we as Catholics are called to be merciful, not be like the judges that forgive people when they're begging for forgiveness. Merciful is saying, you know, we feel safe and comfortable inside of not engaging with other people, being alone, (laughs) you know, individualists watching, you know, watching Netflix at night alone, watching the game alone. Um, other people bring chaos. You know, they're different than us. They have their own problems. You know, they are a relationship we have to navigate, no matter how compatible we are or how good of a friend they are. There's chaos that they bring. And we are called to enter into the chaos of them. And that is what being a merciful person is. and um, and I'm just very, very moved by that. and i I feel, I feel like that is a great Catholic calling. And, um, and not only that, on a person-to-person level, when you add that micro action of on a person-to-person level reaching out to other people, and especially reaching out across divides or reaching out to people who are not part of the social network, what Putnam has found, and others who study kind of social capital and things like this, is it, it is really key to societal flourishing. You know, we're, we can't, none of our institutions are going to function if we don't have that. You know, that is it's kind of like the dog that doesn't bark when we're wondering about all these public problems. We're like, oh, we've thought about all the economic aspects of this or we thought about all the political aspects of this. But there's a third aspect, which is, you know, asking about the social networks. We have uh, Pete Buttigieg saying in the movie, no matter how good your institutions are, if you don't have the person to person communal aspect of it, it's not going to work. Um and no matter how bad your institutions are, if you have the person to person aspect, it can make up for a lot of the flaws of your yeah. institutions. And I just think about that all the time. And you know, the church as the great historic institutionalist entity—you know, the institution of like the last couple thousand years—it's. Uh, I think Catholics are very attuned to it on a societal level as well. Too, you got to you got to weave people together.
2: You mentioned like the dance between our and our values and our institutions. So I'm curious how you would kind of judge. How the Catholic Church is or isn't facilitating that that value of mercy and community. Like, are there are there bright spots and like, where is the church falling short? There, one
1: bright spot is I think the Catholic Church does a a good job, especially at the clerical level. Maybe not at the um, at our level of weaving, trying its best to do the impossible task of, like, weaving together an international community. And so, you know, you meet priests and they're like, I've met in person someone halfway across the world who I have this kind of slight cultural connection to that we're both Catholic. And they they try to weave that community together. And I think they really know that it can't just be an imagined community of the church. It has to be person to person. And there's this flourishing of all these kind of international institutions that the church has that brings people who are very different together. What I think the church, this is Here kind we of go. on a goofy Here we level. Go. <laughs> <laughs> what I think the church could learn from our Protestant brethren <laughs> a bit is part of the reason I think some Protestant churches have survived and even leveled off in the great decline in American uh, churchgoing is because they have innovated in the best practices of literally the sociology of coming together, not we're fighting all the time about theology. But one thing Putnam's work points to is you have to also think about the sociology of the church. What are and let's get really practical and non-academic here. What are ways to bring people together in community in our parishes? That's that are fun. You
0: know? and, well, um, I, I have so many thoughts about this because I'm so frustrated with Catholic parish life as it exists yeah. today in the country. But if you were if you were consulting for random pastor and who says, look, my, my liturgy is great. My homilies are awesome. This person totally exists. I'm sure. <laughs> um, but people aren't coming back. What do I need to do to yeah. make this a thriving civic yeah, and, and you know We
1: don't have to go full, um, get rid of all liturgy and make it a rock band or something. You know, We don't need to do that. You can keep the mass. You know? yeah. I'm not yeah. going to be on this podcast <laughs> telling us you know, to do that. But it's all the stuff around it. It's like one of the things the Protestants do well for the thriving churches is they have small groups and they really invest in small groups. There's a church in my town that has a small group coordinator that literally is like reading studies of how to do the best small groups. They have interchurch like journals on how to run small groups better, you know, and um, and kind of having a flourishing of those and encouraging people to be civic leaders internally. Like, you could start a small group, you could start a men's group or a women's group or something. But, you know, some of them start motorcycle groups, or we're all into this other thing, because the way community, you know, Putnam has this line where he says, community is formed when you go off topic together. Mm. So, you know, you can't just yes. all be sitting around and just being like, how was mass? How was the yes. reading? How was this? You have to go off topic together. Right. And um, so there's that. You have to really think about gatherings. You know, this is something Priya Parker, who we have in the movie, she wrote a great book called The Art of Gathering. You have to be really mindful. You almost have to have a planning meeting beforehand of like, how are we going to have this? church breakfast afterwards to make everyone feel welcome. Let's be really mindful. Are we gonna have name tags? Are the name tags just going to be name tags or should they also have like a fun icebreaker quest? You have to think about icebreakers and not be just corny about them. Like there are ways to do really mindful icebreakers. Yeah we had No
2: We had like a young adult group that at my parish that had since like dissolved because it was that like feeling it's like, okay, after Mass, we go and we awkwardly stand around a table with like a plastic cup of wine and some cheese and we're like the only thing bringing us together is that we're like young adults and like that's not something like <laughs> that's like i'm gonna get jazzed about going to and so how can the church do that better
1: yeah we we gotta have grist in the mill because you can't just say hey go talk it's like when adult do you remember when you were young and adults used to be like um when you were a kid and adults were, oh there's another kid here at the adult party go uh-huh. talk yeah mother, yeah it's. oh yeah. yeah it was like go <laughs> distract <yeah>. yourself please <laughs> like i'd rather sit alone yeah <laughs> um you you gotta have grist in the mill this is why like book clubs are good you have a book to talk about yeah. or we're going to all go do a literal thing together that's not right. about church or right. something yeah. or we're going to go to a game together it's like you have to add things to it you also have to one of the wonderful things we liked pointing out in the movie is we had six community groups and we had this one community group uh which was red bike and green which was a black bike collective in Atlanta and they um they said you know community we just all wanted to go biking and we wanted a place for all of us to go biking. And then we just did what we love together. You know, that's one thing we tried to say about it. And, you know, one of the wonderful things you could do with a parish community is what are things that those young adults want? You know, they might all want to learn something or they might all want to, you know, you can go serious sometimes and it could be, they all might want to deepen their faith by reading. Maybe they all want to let's read the best of Catholic literature and have a book club of, you know, uh, Flannery O'Connor or something, you know, whoever. Or something that's off-topic like that. Um, and, you know, I would say let's look at our Protestant uh, brothers and sisters who have done a good job of kind of growing that. The other thing, too, is I- I'm always big on this. One thing we noticed in the communities that we're working is you have to get a little weird because if you it feels like work and it feels like a corporate team-building exercise if you don't have a little bit of weirdness. So, like, we have the Odd Fellows, which was one of the great federated societies in the movie, and they have all this, like symbology and symbolism and, like, uh, you know, they get tattoos of the symbols and they have sashes and they have different catchphrases. And, you know, we already have that. We Looking have our two symbology of in the mass. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. But you could have just like very light symbology in mm-hmm. your group, like give your group a goofy name, <laughs> you know, give your group a funny, you know, we're all going to learn the handshake to start out. And you could be a little post ironic about it. But eventually that stuff is the grist that adds up to like real world human connection.
0: There's two thoughts I have. One is... If you just rebrand from like club to collective, collective I feel like has more like cool cachet. Get weirder. Yes. Get weirder. Yes. Yeah. Like the instantly increase. The young adult collective at the parish is yeah. way better than the young adult group. Um, so that's my first thought. So, free idea there. Second, I think it's really easy to blame sort of like the stuff around us in the institutions and the parish. And there is something that is incumbent upon us, especially like invested young Catholics that are listening to this show, to have to like suffer through some of the like imperfections and weird times and hard things about like first starting a club or first joining a club right the point where you have to get from like we're here because of this thing and then we go off topic together that there is usually some distance that has to be crossed there and i i don't know that we're the best or i'm the best at being patient to sort of wade through that to get to the good stuff
1: yeah, that is why, you know, one thing Priya Parker talks about is she she wrote um, in The Art of Gathering, uh, she wrote about how um, aggressive hosts need to get more love because, you know, every, no one wants to be like the aggressive host that says you two should talk about this or you're this and you're that or everyone needs to stop and we're all going to do this. But she says, those are the people that hit fast forward on some of that yeah. valley like that's of- It is my wife. Yeah. <laughs> yes, because in the end, we need to be like super grateful for people like your wife on this yeah. because they're the, they take on by having the social confidence. Like this is the calling of the socially confident is they need to get- Just like how the rich need to give their money to mm-hmm. other people. You know, the socially confident need to give, you know, use their confidence as cover to bring the rest of us together. And so telling everyone- You need to share that story about that thing that happened because it would be awkward and like we all want to be self-effacing and so you never want to share the story. But like once you're forced to share the story, it becomes awkward not to share the story. (laughs) So there's stuff like that. And, you know, having some structure that brings out our vulnerabilities of sharing more of ourself. You know, there's that great Timothy Kreider quote that people used to make fun of because it was so intense, which is like, if we want the fruits of being loved, we must pass through the mortifying ordeal of being known. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What what, 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 what prose? The mortifying ordeal of being known. The way that we build community is we each become known to each other. But the process of revealing yourself to each other is incredibly awkward. And there's an incredible amount of judgment around like, oh, they revealed themselves too much or they have ego because they revealed themselves or they must be really weird because they revealed themselves in a weird way the structure needs to help us reveal ourselves like that is what the basic micro stuff of an icebreaker is you know but don't do favorite ice cream flavor do talk about something that's really important to you or you know talk about the you know who's a who's a hero in your life or who's the relative that had the biggest impact on you that's the revealing not mint chocolate chip you know
0: <laughs> yeah very practically what advice would you give to someone listening to this who's like this is great i am really good at finding like a substack writer i'm into or a subreddit that follows my community but how in the world do i even go about joining a real life club that feels so analog and impossible to do in today's world
1: yeah you know what's amazing there there are two things here so one is What's amazing is there are so many clubs out there. I know because we made a movie about joining clubs and they're all <laughs> writing to me. You know, <laughs> Tell people about up us. To me after the screenings, you know, um, and uh, and they're all out there and you're just waiting. And I, I just did a little test in my hometown. And I was just like, I wonder how many clubs are just like within 20 miles of me. And they are there, you know, so... You know, Google around, put out a call, ask people, is there anything for this? And you'll find it. Go to the specialty store for the comic books or the Magic the Gathering game or something and ask if there's something Um, or the pickleball court. Um, The other is, I think everyone just tells me the exact same story of their club starting journey. They go, I really love this thing. I wondered if there were other people who love this thing. I bet there was no one who loved this thing. And then I just put out a call that we're having this thing. And, um, and five people showed up and now it's the best thing in my entire life. (laughs) So, you know, this... This movie is a bit of just a nudge of it's all out there and you just got to do it. If you it. build well, it, they will come. Yeah, I also did want
2: to ask you, if we put you on the spot, like what clubs are you a part of? Did oh you gosh, take your own advice? Am,
1: well, you know, I'll talk about two things here. So I'm in a book club in D.C. I was missing my like collegiate life of like, you know, these deep readings. And that was my thing that I like, like. And I found a bunch of people who were missing their collegiate life of like deep readings and was part of that. And that's kind of just like a fun club of just a thing we like. And we all hang out at a restaurant once a month. But the other thing that we really wanted to show with this movie was clubs also are about power building and advocacy as well. And I'm part of an affordable housing advocacy group in my town. And one of the messages we're trying to say, um, this is my my second club, um, one of the messages we're trying to say with the movie is, you know, after anything bad happens in American life or, you know, people are worried about some public problem, everyone always says, I'm so bothered because there's like nothing – there's nothing I can do about this alone. You know, what can an individual do to fight these big problems? And one of the big messages of our film is, you're right, there is nothing an individual can do to solve these big problems. Your cynicism is completely correct. Which is the exact opposite of the like, very mundane advice you get. It's like, oh, one person can change the world. No, (laughs) it's not true. (laughs) One person can join a club that can change the world. And The track record of one person is very little, and the track record of clubs is very, very high in changing the world. And all great revolutions, reform efforts, victories for humanity, uh, prophetic revivals of rusty old institutions all came from... Clubs. Groups of people getting together with a shared mission. And in those very clubs about very serious topics, they also had a lot of fun, too. And they also did not give short shrift to the internal community building. It wasn't all business and just another – you get off your work day and then more work. They made sure to mix it all in there.
2: Yeah, We could talk about this for another hour, but we don't want (laughs) to take all of your time, um, so we'll – wrap up with our final question that we ask all of our guests, which is if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? And we'll remind you that you uh, canonized Sister Helen Prejean last time, so you can't can't do her.
1: (laughs) You know, I bet I'm not the only one to do this. I'm going to just do the cliche one. So I'm going to do, you know, the great patron saint of the neighborhood, Fred Rogers, who uh, I bet other people have said, but he you know, one thing that I think is totally underappreciated about Fred Rogers is he was basically pushing an ideology on children of neighborhood <laughs> community, you know, and I think people have focused on the you are special side of Fred Rogers and they think, oh, this is a story about individual kind of a, one of the cultural institutions of individualism, this guy on TV telling kids you are special. That is a very important part of his work. The other half of his work was completely communitarian. You are special, and special you has something to give to your lovely neighborhood, and you should get to know all your neighbors. And so I think that would be an appropriate saint. Fred Rogers uh, was uh, recently, he fell. We the,
0: our, we had some listeners organize like a March Madness between people who yes. canonized on the show. He came in second. Okay, great. Uh, to the he, he fell to Pope Francis. So, okay. <laughs> but maybe this will put him back on the map. Yep. <laughs> Get him uh, seated higher next time. Uh, the great. film is Join or Die. And uh, where can people find
1: this? Yeah. So, if you go, we are touring the country at film festivals and at independent screenings if you go to joinordie.film die dot film you can see all the places we're screening around the country and there is a form if you're not in one of those places fill it out and we will come to your neck we'll hopefully come to your neck of the woods or your institution and then we're hopefully on streaming by the end of the year or early next year. Awesome. Thanks so much Pete for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much.
0: We're the last people
2: standing still dancing when the lights come on the music is fading. But this is our favorite part i used to feel like an outcast but i think i'm all right after all because you make me feel like i'm
0: Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Christobal Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundra. Live studio audience provided by Chris Kinker. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook also at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcast, And if you're on Apple or Spotify, please leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Zach Davis, and we will see you next week.